Hello, and welcome to Tea House Talks, the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. Today, we present the first half of an interview of Sonnet Labé, led by Marjorie Rogunda. My name is Paul Minier, and I'm a research assistant for the Tea House Project at the University of Calgary. Tea House is honored to be podcasting to you from Treaty 7 territory. We specifically acknowledge the Blackfoot Confederacy, comprising the Siksika, Pikani, and Kainai First Nations, as well as the Sutina First Nation, comprising the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. We acknowledge also the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. In this Part 1 interview, the book Sonnets Shakespeare is introduced. They discuss writing and coping strategies during the pandemic, mental health and well-being, and challenges to finding both safe and progressive spaces in cultural and academic communities. They also discuss systemic racism within institutions, inequities for mental health support, barriers to anti-racism activism, Black Lives Matter, and how embodied writing practices inform Sonnet Labé's poetry. The interview begins with a reading of two poems from Sonnet's Shakespeare. Marjorie Ragunda is a second-year master's student in the Department of English at the University of Calgary. She graduated with a Bachelor of Arts in Journalism and Media Studies and English Literature honors from Rhodes University, South Africa, 2017 and 2018. Marjorie's research interests are post-colonial literature, African popular imaginaries, and female subjectivities in African literature. Sonnet Lapé is a mixed-race Black writer, professor, organizer, and emerging musician of Afro-Guyanese, Indo-Guyanese, and Quebecois ancestry, and the author of three collections of poetry, A Strange Relief, Kilarno, and Sonnet Shakespeare. Sonnet Shakespeare was a Quill and Choir Book of the Year for 2019, was shortlisted for the Dorothy Livesey Poetry Prize and the Raymond Souster Award, and longlisted for the Pat Lowther Memorial Award. Their chapbook, Anima Canadensis won the 2017 B.P. Nickel Chapbook Award. Labbe lives on Vancouver Island and is a professor of creative writing and English at Vancouver Island University. Madriaganda at Tea House. Thank you so much for doing this. Hello. <laughs> Thanks for having me here. My name is um, is Dr. Sonnet Labay. My pronouns are they and them. And I am a poet and an editor and writer and very emerging um, songwriter living here on the unceded territories of um, Coast Salish Halkaminam speaking peoples. Um, on Vancouver, Vancouver Island. So I'm in the, t- the traditional territory of the Snanaymuk people. And so Anthape Sonnet and, and Haichka to the Holmuk Muslimuk who've taught me a lot about the land that I'm, that I'm living on. And I think that's, that's a good start to who I am. And I wrote, I wrote a book that we're, I think we're going to talk about. Okay, so would you like to read? Yeah. Two of your poems. We talked about some some poems that would be good for this discussion. So I'm going to read poem number one and poem 11 from Sonnets Shakespeare. So this one is number one. Seed, where are you from? The fairest face wins. Some creatures we desire and give nice presents and some we make threat. The rain of blue eyes is at stake in the beauty game. A rose is a rose is an avatar of might, an avatar of meaning never to die. Whose beauty stays rosed in the orality, in the performance of shouldered burdens and myth? In the medicine craft of unerasing sentence, I am this tender. Mine air might be blonde and starry if it weren't for this memory, for all the blurt and hurt thread run through my contracted muscle, through my genetic inheritance. 
Who says we, blinking bright eyes, offering their descendants? Seed, what history will wild from you if no copy writes your flowering? Shame is a shit witness, gaslighter of self, substantiating liars' accounts. It fuels this unmaking as a famine wets a hunger. I have consumed an abundance of non-apologies. They are nutri-Swedish, leaving aftertastes of hostility. Flowering story and unpatented hybridizations. My we is a style of grassroots, a green radical of the word patriation. Hashtag not all colonizers runs like a blight through the Anglo culture to which I am inseparably grafted. In my flow, the world is a stage we'll grow out of. Its garden shaming and ornamental governances, its dominions are but a season's display. Here are alders with whom I'm together, gauging the dying hope of offspring within the nation's clinical healing zones. A white hardness buds from buried story. The colony is content that it is fair. I never intended to be so tender. I am a northborn orchid, urban and chlorophyllic, making compost of my culture's waste, spreading it pretty thick. Is a word the inventive give prefixes like sand and bush. The word plays attach like prickly pods. How will your beauty be realized, covered in burrs? You're an English rose, the English say, to English cuteness or the crown, where beauty roses as... The world is due for a preoccupation with beauty and its christenings, brave, seed, and the ravens will listen. In both cases, there's text where I voiced only silence. Next one I'll read is 11. Are these my fathers? Stinking of gas in the proud asphalt wars? Insisting the intention of past oaths outgrows these oaths? I can own eons, fathers swear, if I can defer promissory thoughts. Fathers, whose dominion can I inherit? Whose underplayed ruthlessness must I understand? Things happened at friends' hands, bloody with, because I can. They invite you to their Kawarthan cottage. It's been in the family. They tell the story of great uncle Bruce dealing with the squatter and his round wigwam, his stutter. However you gain mastery is touchy, say all their mounted moose heads from the wall. My actual father doesn't have a cottage. He was excluded from youth by common violence and poverty. Fathers, if there is a bloodline linking me to slave owners, to raw histories of domination, there's more barefaced buy-in on the Guyanese side, where Indo-uncles ran rice plantations. On the white side, l'histoire de mes aïeux is lost, but the whiteness must follow a story back to guesthood on this land. This complicity, I've been deeded. I can't buy out. I fell out of my mother into territorial lawyerings that never minded treaties, into an ethos teaching its ethnic intermediary class to hope for an upper hand, into a land called Canada because someone can. I don't know how to dream here, what success looks like for me, lackey of treaty breakers, welcome as multiculturally obliged to those who make the nation. Who, realizing what the Indian Act is, wants such country? Comfortable settlers choose not to know their own administration. I'm an ungrateful, hateful, ethnocentric immigrant 
if I defy the tolerance story. Leaders share burdens, show fealty, assure lessons learned, and are erudite about hard reconciliations. They perish the thought of residential schools. I don't know whose administrative heart to beseech. These men disown my discoverings. They own gavels, call themselves progressive. Am I as good as white to ancestors' babies who live the brunt of my miseducation and status? Where my genuine fucks about the Haudenosaunee are so, so sophomoric, where my unlearning and dissent is insubordination to the uncles, but pays off in cultural capital among do-gooderish types. Hectares of verdant field, hectares of northern seal habitat, none of these lands were mine. My landsmen, then, were my fathers only ever abstractly. So, the community I show up for, who are my lands people? Settlers, patrilineal tomorrows, cheer for the Toronto Raptors. The politically incorrect Redditors, fashionistas, boot campers, and word spokers say they've found their tribes. I feel like the, the right thing to do after someone reads is just always to just kind of snap your fingers. I feel like it's just... That's the only thing that you can do. That was really beautiful. Thank you for taking the time to read um, from your work. So I guess my very first question speaks to when you were reading and also when I was reading your work, I was really thinking a lot about belonging and space and place, particularly in this time of the pandemic and in this time that we're in right now that's unprecedented. So my first question is just kind of like a general question about what has your writing and creative process been like during this pandemic? I am surviving by playing guitar. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and for me, that's, it's directly connected to my, my poetic practice. This work that I just read from was seven years in the making because of the, the, the process of interweaving the letters with, with Shakespeare, just for those who might be listening to this and not aware of that that work that I just read had Shakespeare's poems kind of interwoven through through them. So it was a very long and very heady process. Like if you think of where your energy is in your body, it meant that my, my energy was kind of up here. Plus it's, it was super textual and I did it on the computer. And uh, that was a way of surviving, like, I understand my, my work as a way of just kind of processing and articulating stuff that's going on with me. And for a number of reasons, that practice ceased to be helpful for, for me. Like it got to the point where that kind of working was just as anxiety producing as the rest of the world. And I needed to bring, bring the practice down into my, into my body. So as many, as many hours as it takes to get a text kind of perfect in my mind, musically and, and content wise, before I come to a space like this and, and like voice it and bring it through my body, right? But writing, uh, writing to sing and writing to, to voice things that way where time and inflection uh, are really important has been, is much more vulnerable and the audience, the way that the same stuff that goes on in my mind and my body, like living as a racialized person in this time and in this space, the way that it sits to sing it to someone is very, is very different. Like it changes the writing. So I would say that, that the rhythmic aspect of it, the embodied aspect of it, the breathing aspect of of bringing rhythm to the foreground and bringing voicing to the foreground of what I'm doing with my voice and my writing has been absolutely key to maintaining the degree of mental health that I have through the pandemic. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. I don't live and in a space where I've got a lot of interlocution with 
with BIPOC uh, writers or academics in, in an embodied way. And so that means some strategies uh, really need to be in place. Yeah, I guess I was also just, even as you read, I was just kind of thinking around this idea of, of borders and as you're saying, kind of living in this space as also a racialized human being myself, kind of thinking about how kind of borders are a lot more present in my life right now, kind of having to ask yourself also, where is home? Because you're, liter uh, you're literally either being told that either you go home or you might not be able to go home because for your own safety. So I think also when you were reading, that's why I wanted to start with the question to also just kind of ask about like the space that you're in mentally. Yeah, well, so my, my immediate family, like my closest peeps, my sister, her, her kids, my mom and dad and my brother are all in Southwestern Ontario. So I miss them a ton. Soon enough, it'll be a couple of years since I've seen my nieces and they are, they are little. So that's a huge chunk of their lives. And yeah, being, being a mixed race black person on, in this space in Vancouver Island, like in Nanaimo, I get caught up in my head to the point where I don't even know if I can speak on, like speak uh, responsibly about being racialized anymore because I don't have anybody to talk about it with here except white people and they are not equipped to help me like <laughs> strategize being and strategize thinking and, and that, that kind of work. I feel like the pandemic has also, in this space that I'm in specifically, you would think that the summer in this, in the some ways that the summer where after George Floyd's murder and the Black Lives Matter movement being visible and like heard around the globe, that that would have lit a fire, but it has not lit a fire. There's a lot of like, we've got other things to do. It's a pandemic and there are so few black voices being raised to ask for anything around here that it's, it's really a kind of a zone where you feel as though you must just, you know, politely ask for things. There's, it's, it's very hard to like <laughs> assert. <laughs> yeah. It's, it makes a huge difference. Like where you are, where one is, if I were, if I were in Kitchener with my family, I would be existing in a much less fraught way. And if I were in Scarborough, I would be living in a much less fraught way. Like maybe there are parts of Calgary too that, that would be dope to be in. But I literally, sometimes I just sit and in my meditation, I go to this moment where I was in Sephora in Scarborough town center. And like, I looked around and I don't, th I think of like 30 women in that Sephora, two of them were white. <laughs> and I was like, Wow, <laughs> Canada, here I am. I do not stand out at all. It's great. Yeah, and then I just, I, I meditate on that. I'm really glad that you brought that up because I, I guess I'm interested in being in that position where you're the only racialized person in, in, in the setting that you're working in, what it was like during the summer when these conversations or this kind of awakening for some people imagined and you had like, at least for me, a lot of institutions being like, okay, now is the time that we have the conversation. So what did it feel like? Were you a point of reference for a lot of people? And I guess I'm thinking about in terms of kind of like, okay, this is the time to um, talk about race. So like, let's talk to Sonette because she's the one of the few representations that we have within this space. Was that an experience that you had? And again, how did that inform your well-being as you've spoken about during a pandemic and also during a time that was very heartbreaking for at least a lot of us. I expected people to want to talk to me but it was a moment in which I, I think I really was confronted with what a lack of diversity means for the psyches of the people that comfortably live white supremacy with not a lot of diversity what they might feel is a lot of diversity, but really not compared to urban centers. My white colleagues 
get a little bit of support, the anti-racism work that's being led by some white people is, is being received differently. Once we were talking about the text itself, I think erasure is a big part of it. And I think as you've been saying, like, I'm wondering how did you navigate anger and especially in a space when you're not even allowed to be angry? You know, I mean, I just find it really supportive that you even ask those questions. You know, you're not in a space where people acknowledge the psychological violence of gaslighting, right? Like basically minimizing what it is for racialized people to, to just exist. It has been so hard, put it that way. My university put out a thing in the summer saying access EFAP, which is the service that does mental health for faculty and staff. And that service, they specifically reference EFAP during a moment of huge psychological pressure for Black people, okay? And even that, I forget exactly how that was offered, but it was offered in a really strange way. But that service does not have any mechanism for you to ask for for racialized support. Like you can't ask for a black counselor. You can't ask for a racialized counselor. They're like, we don't have that information about our, our counselors. And if you ask for, you know, can I speak to somebody who's who's versed, who's at least, you know, got kind of a decolonial framework, or at least, you know, is equipped to support a person who is just basically trying to maintain through white supremacy, wanting the tools to navigate ongoing micro and macro aggressions, mm -hmm. because they understand the framework of systemic racism. They don't have that. I've had that conversation with those people at least three times with the intake people trying to explain to them what I'm looking for and that support from a white counselor who they themselves is like this when you bring up systemic racism or white supremacy, when they themselves have not done any of that work and they get tense, those people will try to assimilate you or they will try to like give you therapy that that brings you around to like everybody's all the same and it really wasn't about race and here's some tools for you to understand that everybody's the same there there's so many ways to just re-experience that violence in the therapeutic context and basically that was the full response of the institution was like this is a hard time for some people and if you might want to check out efap so in that moment after George Floyd's murder, realizing that as a body in space, I was not going to be in a room with another person with, you know, darker skin who, who I could say, oh my God, the world right now, holy f right? Mm -hmm. Like there was nobody to say that to. Who are my friends right now? Like, where are you? They were all like, oh, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, there, there are so many things about, I think, your experience that are, are very similar to, I think, my experience as well during that time. Because as I said, I think, and as you also mentioned, it was a thing that institutions were like, okay, so this thing is happening, we have to say something. And I know with our particular institution in our department, a friend of mine and who was also part of the department came and our department called a meeting and they said, you know, come in and we're going to talk about these things and talk about how to make a statement. And the platform was there, but my friend pushed back and said, well, this is not the time to put out a statement because you actually don't even know what the problem is. You don't even know that there is a problem. And she wrote a beautiful statement in which she actually named students that were making um, the environment uncomfortable for the very few BIPOC students like myself who are present in the department. And she got a lot of pushback. And as you mentioned, gaslighting, the kind of protection that was shown from the department for the white students of like, well, don't say it this way. It's too harsh or it's too truthful for us to, to deal with. Like you need to kind of soften it up for us. And I think for me during that time, it was 
it was very hard because I was like, so like, what is the point? So I guess what I wanted to say is like, in terms of your activism and speaking up, where is the point where you, I guess, navigate between staying silent for your own well-being and your mental health? Or like, as you say, speaking up and then kind of getting responses that even make your head want to explode. I, I guess it's an ongoing survival strategy. I, I literally wake up in the morning now and, and ask myself and say to myself, okay, what do I want to put my mind on? Like traumatic things and, you know, hostility from various factions pull my attention, right? You know, I ruminate on them or I, you know, my mind wants to solve those things. And without being able to move around in space very easily right now, without having, you know, some couches to flop on and chill with friends who, who get it, every day is a, what do I need to do for my mental health in this hour? And then I get through that hour and then, and then I make those choices again. And so a conversation like this is, is helpful. Like when I was talking to my mom, I'm like, how am I, what, what should I do? Should I just like give up being a writer? Should I stop? Should I stop talking about this stuff? I wouldn't have had hostility at work if I hadn't, if I hadn't spoken up, right? I pass for South Asian. So when I articulate my blackness, that's, that's also like, that causes a little bit more tension for, for people. They're like, oh, we didn't need to eh, engage with that. The ground keeps shifting. Like there were things that I thought I was doing to navigate that in my PhD. Like, I guess in my PhD, I was still in kind of this self-help mode where I believed that I could therapy myself into this space of mental health that I actually now kind of don't believe, I don't know if it exists. Like it's kind of where my creative interests thematically are is like, how can you have mental health that's based on denial of coloniality? From the perspective that I'm, that I'm in now, it feels like almost all mental health, so many mental health issues come from being excluded and bullied and violenced out of somebody's idea of what a good moneyed family is, a good connected Christian white family. And that, you know, even white people's mental health is strained by trying to conform. And then this therapeutic system grows up around trying to help women to be mentally healthy. And it seems unthinkable now that you would support women's mental health like how can you support women's mental health without a feminist framework right without at least a sense of like domestic violence tends to happen in these gendered ways women tend to suffer it more we're social women are socialized to take these things and women need to be socialized to assert themselves like those things we i think are now pretty widely accepted right that you would need that framework in order to support a woman properly but to support racialized people properly requires an understanding of centuries of coloniality, of transatlantic slavery, of just so many things just need to be understood, taken for granted that this is the, this is the pressure that we're navigating. And how are you gonna help us do that? If the whole framework doesn't even address whiteness as this space of we never deal with that we know ne we just never deal with that then like whiteness cannot cannot provide the tools to psychologically deal with that i mean Fanon already said that i'm not saying anything that france <laughs> didn't already say right but we're like however many years later and i did i think i believed for a long time in an individualized, like if I just therapy myself enough, I'm going to be stable in a certain way. And some degree of liberation has come for me in letting go of faith in that 
entirely and having to go to those practices with my own like framework of this is what I'm surviving Mm -hmm. and yeah who can help me navigate that I mean I tried to uh, I did reach out I tried to I I, I organized a Black Lives Matter march here I co-organized that was part of like my mental health thing to do like I did it reactively and responsively because I needed to see that there were other black people in Nanaimo and there are there are not that many but Mm. but there are and it was really it was really supportive to see the community come together and to see you know white people here being holding signs being like you know we don't know what you're going through but we are here to list like all the all the things that was that was super important and I spoke about this at the at the rally. I spoke about like what is mental health, and I read my poem about only ever having one racialized mental health support. This was like ten years ago, twelve years ago. Yeah. So someone put me uh, in touch with a black counselor in Victoria, and I was hoping that I was like, "Whoa, this is going to be amazing! Like, I'm going to actually get support from a black woman." And she did have that framework, but she hadn't even actually started practicing yet. She'd just written her dissertation on the ways in which racialized people were leaving counseling because of systemic racism, like happening in the, in the therapeutic scenario over and over and over and over again. And so it's a re-traumatizing space. So that would have been great. I thought I was going to have that support. And it didn't work out because she she actually is not practicing yet. And she was like, we'll do it. We'll like, we'll be able to work in three weeks. And then the pandemic actually stalled things. So that support wasn't there. It's very much just me on my own recognizing that most of the people that I know, like I, I ask myself, what are my cousins doing? How are they navigating this stuff? What are my, what are my siblings doing? Right? And they just don't engage as much as I do. Like I'm the poet in the family. I'm the writer in the family. And so I make hay out of this stuff. I Mm. do think about it. And I'm like, so I do ask myself, like if I gave up writing, would I survive better? Because I wouldn't put my mind on this stuff. I could just say to myself, this is a racist world. Go get your money. Go get your money. And that's it. So I don't know. And even also thinking about like, having to pay there's another there's a there are a couple of black therapists in um, in Vancouver that I know are there that do um, remote work. And a part of me is just so pissed off to think of having to pay $160 an hour outside of like, what supports the university does like the mental health supports that it's like here's the mental health support that we give and i'm like it's not adequate it doesn't even begin to address this stuff and if i want to i can pay 160 dollars an hour to this other person over here just to survive just to survive it just feels up it's really beautiful that you you spoke about mental health because even as you were speaking, I was just thinking about, you know, how many institutions offered support to their Black students right after George Floyd? Because I think there are times when even people speak about what happened over the summer and kind of speak about like the George Floyd thing. And I think for me, as a, a Black woman, it wasn't a George Floyd thing. It was really, really painful to see that. Like it fucked my mental health up for a very long time. So like, as you're saying, like, what were the conversations that were happening other than kind of coming and, and being like, oh, we just want to have like, put out a statement of solidarity. But like, do you actually get how messed up the situation was and how for some um, students, this is really close to home asking students, are you okay? Can we provide you with the right kind of help as you're saying? And I think that that was also missing. And I just think it's really beautiful about how you've talked about centering mental health, especially for racialized bodies and being really aware of how important and how delicate that is. It all happens in here, right? 
And if I'm telling myself, like if I'm in distress and, and the world around me feeds me back the vision of myself as this poor thing, then like, which is wrong. It's just, it's just wrong. Cause I'm strong for one, just to even get to this point, to even be surviving where I, where I am. But I think, you know, there's a degree of just a strength and a kind of emotional set of tools and maturity that any racialized person, like, <laughs> I don't know, just anybody who's functioning is doing so had to build themselves a set of tools. And I guess I, I do think that kind of like compartmentalizing and denying and like, like not looking at it is the, the go-to for, for most people. Like in some ways it's, it's a, a real privilege. This is what my mom said last night. She, I was like, oh, she's, gonna, she's like, Sonnet, don't say that. Like nobody else gets to talk about it. That's, you know, poets and writers get to talk about it. The rest of us just have to shut up. Like we can't say anything about it, but the distress, like half of the things in therapy, when you do like look for, look for tools and, and look for the, the things that people who maintain their own mental health, like what do they do? Tuning into one's own distress and being aware of what's going on in one's body to, to also bring it back to the music too. How you really feel is key to mental health. Like mental unhealth is squishing off, it's like siphoning off feelings and denying feelings and pretending you're happier than you are. Pretending things don't bother you. That's the core of disease. And specifically, you know, women who experience domestic violence or who are staying in women, people, non-binary people, my, my pronouns are they, them, by the way, um, people experiencing that in an intimate way are counseled. The therapy is tune into your feelings. Your feelings matter. Your feelings are giving you important information. If you are angry, if you are distressed, if you have been abused, you have been trained to ignore that, right? So I am healthy if I don't ignore that. I am healthy when I say this is stressful for my body. It is healthy when I say to myself, oh my God, lady, the hostility is coming off of you and it feels racist. Like I feel it in my gut, right? Like I need to be able to acknowledge that. And so maintaining that sense of being true to my own instrument, like my own body and noticing those feelings, validating those feelings, particularly in an environment that, that wants to invalidate those feelings, which I've always thought of universities as a place where you could have those feelings and they wouldn't be invalidated, but it is better. When you think of all the places that we could be living in right now, like we could be working at a bank, we could be working for an oil company, be working for a media company that's like, you know, constantly reinforcing that blonde is commercial. Like we, there's so many different environments that we could be working in. And we are having this conversation supported by Tia House, right? So hmm. even in the like ugly machine, there's a little pocket of space for us to have this conversation. And that is where I try to put my focus. Thank you for saying that, because I think when we segue into your work, specifically Sonnet Shakespeare, while I was reading it, I felt like I was reading a journal, like a poetic journal. Like it really did feel like I was reading through your personal journal. I don't know, maybe if that was just me. To hear you speak about that kind of, the way in which you say validating your feelings, just writing exactly what you feel, but also writing the self within the sticks to give just a little bit of context, obviously, to um, people who might not know what we're speaking about. Can you just kind of speak briefly about Sonnet Shakespeare, the context, because I know there are many layers, as you mentioned at the beginning when we were talking, but I think first I'll particularly ask about the title, Why Sonnet Shakespeare? My name, Sonnet, is a combination of my parents' names. My dad's name is Jason, and my mom's name is Janet. You take S-O-N from Jason and N-E-T from Janet, and you get Sonnet. So I have had this name from the beginning, and always kind of felt like I ended up as a poet. It's not something that I had 
you know, really set out to be. I just kind of did it thinking I would become a writer through doing poetry. <laughs> and so uh, for a number of years, I didn't write sonnets. and It felt really cheesy to be a poet named Sonnet. And then when I was coming up with this project, when I was thinking about the next book, it was a moment where a lot of erasure poetics were, were happening and a lot of conversations around the power dynamics of appropriative poetics. The practice of taking a source text and manipulating it. We were thinking a lot about the power dynamics of that. I hesitate to like publicize it, but because it was such an important moment, there was a, a white poet in the United States that took the document of the autopsy of Michael Brown and read that out as their own. And that was just heinous. And so thinking about who gets to take what text and, and make it theirs was in the water in that moment. And so thinking about erasure was on my mind, thinking about how erasure works and how deletion is a form of erasure, but crowding and surrounding and just being like the only person and like the pressures of being asked to silence oneself or assimilate or just never voice anything about your difference uh, as erasure was something that was on my mind. And the relationship of erasure practices to source texts was there and available to me. And so I chose the sonnets particularly as emblematic of British colonial education texts, right? Things that my parents learned in school and that the textbook that I had, the little, the first, my exposure to the sonnets was from my dad's high school text. And so once I had like had all of that as a project that I was thinking of doing, the name to be able to like, just invert it and have it be sonnets Shakespeare and have that sense of, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to play with poning Shakespeare felt like it was the right thing to do. Let me just say it's a terrible marketing thing to do though, because <laughs> Googling sonnets Shakespeare does not <laughs> bring you this book. That was literally one of the questions I wanted to, like, it, it was actually not a question, but I just put it down as a comment. And I was like, I Google Sonnet Shakespeare, and then it just kind of came Shakespeare's Sonnets. I know, I didn't, oh, well, it's too late now. <laughs> but I, I don't know, I think even when I was thinking about it, I I don't know, I, I really enjoyed it, because I, I do feel like, again, as you're saying, like, I, I feel like it's, it's just this act of speaking back, like, what are some of the responses that you've gotten, I guess, from the title of the text? And particularly when you were thinking of publishing, was there some pushback about changing the title? Or what are some of the responses that you received? You know, no one pushed back on the, no one pushed back on the title. I think that people got, got what it was supposed to be about. And you're, you're actually, I think, the first person to, to really kind of drill down and ask, ask about the title. It's been interesting to me who wants to talk about, who wants to come at the conversation from, should we no longer study Shakespeare? And like, that's where they want to start the conversation versus entering it from so many other, so many other potential places to, to start. I guess I knew, I, I had a sense that that would happen. So I'm not surprised. There hasn't been as much um, like, how dare you? And I, I actually didn't expect a lot of how dare you. What's been interesting is there's been a few people who like wanted to talk about the book, white men who start the question with, I'm totally like on board for this book. I love this book, but I'm sure you're getting how dare you. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I'm actually not getting a lot of how dare you, um, except in this conversation. So it's very strange, very strange, but I'm currently reading a history of Guyana and it's this very dude-y, like the dude who wrote it. It's like exports, there's, there's the politics, there's the school system and there's cricket. Oh, and the church, right? Like that's the history of Guyana. There's like no women in it, but the British school system is a huge chunk of this dude's history of Guyana and the demographics chapters of this history of Guyana talk specifically about the 
layers of racism and how like you know the british were here and like these the indo-caribbeans were like here and black people were here and like you know i have to remind myself when i go out and live in nanaimo day to day and i'm engaged as though i am way out way out here like what are you even talking about sonnet english is like white supremacy i'm actually not saying anything that like guyanese people haven't been like saying I'm just repeating my grandmother said Hmm. basically about (laughs) the British school system and that people like Lillian Allen talk about that, you know, Dion Brand or like Nurbese Phillip, like just seems a commonplace to me, but I'd say the theme of this year sometimes is, is really like, no sonnet, not everybody experiences Shakespeare as a tool of colonialism. I'm like, how can you not? <laughs> but, you know, I don't know what it's like to grow up in a in a white household where your grandmother wasn't just like the British. <laughs> you know? So, I think it's so interesting that you say that because I think one of the experiences that I had when I got here which was literally just last year was that um, you know, studying my masters, you know, talking about the things that I was interested in, um, which was just obviously my work has just a, a focus in the African continent itself. And I was like, you know, I'm inter- interested in African literature and kind of like hearing, you know, a, a white male say to me, you know, like that's really good, but you know, if you want to make it, you know, further into your PhD and you know, into get like. Um, be an associate and all these things and professorship, you know, you really do have, like, it's really important that people do know that you, you know, kind of like Shakespeare and that you well studied in like medieval literature. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, like my entire life has been in British education. So it's not like I don't know, that's just been my life. I haven't ever, this is the first time, I I guess when I started my university education was the first time I guess what I'm trying to say, I could make a choice. I could choose what I wanted to read and I could choose what I wanted to study or what classes I wanted to go to. And I could make that choice for myself. But I guess it was interesting to see, like, I was like, I thought that I had gotten to that point, but being told, well, in order for you to make it into this white space, you need to know those things. Otherwise you won't really be respected for just like, as you were saying, for just being, Uh, a Black woman focusing on African literature. That just doesn't really matter that much. I chose myself, like my PhD is not on the literatures of the Caribbean. It is not on Indian women's literatures or South Asian women's literatures or South Asian people's literatures or Black people's literatures, African or Caribbean diaspora. It's, It's not on any of that specifically because I had been working at U of T in, in communications for a few years before, before going back to do my PhD. And somewhere I had really absorbed that. And I was like, if I want a teaching job, I'm gonna have to study something else. And so mm-hmm. I did, I did. I have not gone back and really, like there are parts of that work that show up in, in Sonnet Shakespeare, but I haven't made much of basically a PhD that was like a modernist study of a lot of white guys. Um, I did a monograph on a, on a white male poet. I hope it's composting in me, like all of those five years of what I studied, but sometimes I wish I had been braver. However, my feeling was that I wouldn't be taken seriously. <laughs> I'm glad that you say that because I think for me, that's just been my entire experience. It's just feeling like you're not taken seriously. Or like what you're doing just really doesn't matter. And it's just kind of constantly, sorry, this has turned into a therapy session, but constantly being into in the space of isolation. And I think, as you're saying, like, I think what you did was brave. I mean, because I think even I'm in this place where I've constantly questioned myself. I mean, I'm coming to the end of my degree and it feels really empty because I'm doing something alone. Well, amongst the community of Black scholars that does exist, I can't speak for any of them, but I I can imagine that if they looked at my PhD, they'd be like, Sonnet, you have not done the work. Like, I don't think I could go for, I don't know, I don't know, maybe because of my own work, but like, I don't think I could go for a Black lit job 
because I'm a creative writing professor, right? I was hired to, to teach poetry writ, writ large. And then I'm also teaching in the, in the English department where I have not yet taught an upper year class. I teach university writing and, and that kind of thing. And my PhD was not like the main thing as far as my entry into this creative writing teaching role. But if I were to try to get a job talking about African literature or black literatures, I think they'd be like, no, we'll hire March because she, you know, she's done the work. And, and I do think that there are scholars out there who will respect what you have done. I could name names of people who value it even that much more knowing what personal costs there are to you and like the risks that you take systemically in choosing to focus on that. I mean, I can't offer you a job right now, (laughs) but thank you for doing that work. Thank you for like putting all of your talent and scholarship on the literatures that you chose. It's important. Thank you. And I think also, but as you say as well, I think it's very real also in terms of your own experience of of having those moments where you have to be like, well, I'm just going to have to do this because maybe I'll have a lot more support this way or it's it's better supported in terms maybe whatever your choices were. But I think it's also a very real experience to have to navigate that. We hope you enjoyed this part one interview of Sonnet Labé by Marjorie Ragunda. I'm Paul Minier, and you're listening to Tea House Talks. Tea House recognizes the generous support of the Canada Research Chairs Program and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. We also appreciate the support of the Faculty of Arts and the Department of English at the University of Calgary, where our offices are housed, as well as the guidance of Mark Stuckel at the Taylor Family Digital Library. Tea House is run by Larissa Lai, Mahmoud Ababne, Rebecca Jelaine, Paul Minier, Joshua Whitehead, Ryan Stern, Mark Lynch, and Marjorie Ragunda. Our music is Monarch of the Streets by Loyalty Freak Music. Stay tuned for part two of this interview with Sonnet Labbe at Tea House Talks. For more on the work of Tea House, including symposia, panels, and readings, please check out our website at www tiahouse.ca. If you'd like to be in touch, send us an email at tiahouseyyc at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.